So let's uh, go to Lord in prayer and then we'll dig into the word. Heavenly Father, uh, we're grateful for this time, this space. Uh, it's easy for me to take for granted Sunday mornings, a building to meet in and people uh, who are around us to encourage us towards you. Uh, we have so many good things, and, and it's easy to forget that you're the giver of every good thing. And so we just thank you, Father, for your good gifts. And most of all, for the gift of relationship. We have not earned it. We never could. We never will. Um, that our sins have been paid for, just like we sang, through the atoning, the covering death of Jesus on the cross. And his life now lives in us through your very spirit. What a gift. What an opportunity. And we recognize that though this gift is available, it's, it's offered to the world, there's so many around us. Next door neighbors, uh, cube mates or cubicle desk mates in our office, um, people that we rub shoulders with at uh, grocery stores and just throughout our life. There's so many um, who are far from you, who are lost. And we... I love the term lost, Father, because it, it, it implies value is there. God-given value. Uh, we never lose trash. <laughs> we only lose things that we want to find that are valuable. So I pray um, that you would grow our heart for the lost. Jesus, you came to seek and serve, or to, to, to seek and to find that, was that which was lost. So I pray that we would do the same. And, and Holy Spirit, guide us. We, we need to rely on you in this and not just think, okay, I've got to go share my faith once a week and you know, check the box. Um, or I just, I'm just going to model my life. Keep us away from um, just the, the false ideas of what living on mission looks like, either passively or over-aggressively. Um, may, may it be clear that you are leading our lives and our words as we, as we speak your truth in love to people. And I pray for our time in the book of Job this morning. God, apart from you, um, I can do nothing of, of effect, of spiritual worth. Uh, but I pray that you would do spiritual good to the people that you purchased with your blood, Lord Jesus. Um, and send us out in the world uh, a world full of people uh, struggling and suffering. And we ourselves might be as well. So speak to us. Encourage our hearts. and love you. Amen. So we're in this series through, through the Bible, uh, book by book, the Bible story. And you might wonder, why cover Job here? Uh, it's found in the middle of your Bible. Your Bible is put together uh, by the forms of literature. Uh, no one really knows for sure when Job was written, but I want to cover it at the beginning because Job answers a very ancient question. In fact, it more asks the question than it answers it, as we'll find out. And that is the problem of evil. The question goes like this. If God is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful, then why does suffering, why does evil exist? And one answer that we're going to see today is 
Well, it, it doesn't exist. Karma or retribution theology says if you put in good things, if, if you act well, then you'll get good things out. The only reason that good isn't coming out is you might not have put, up, put in enough good. So and that treats, this whole idea treats God as a cosmic vending machine. You know, you got to insert the right amount of money or the right things in order to get out what you want. And Job just blows that idea out of the water. Yeah, it is, it is a praise God. Hallelujah. But you do find retribution theology in other parts of the Bible, meaning there's a principle of reaping and sowing, but it's really important that we understand from the beginning of this story that it is not one-to-one. It is not this predictable uh, mechanic type of formula. So what we're going to cover today, here's our outline, is we're going to cover the story of Job. It's 42 chapters. We're going to connect this story to Christ because the Bible is one unified story pointing to and leading to Jesus. And we're also going to consider this ancient text has very relevant application for our lives today. So we're going to do all of that in 30 minutes. So uh, buckle up. In chapter 1, we are introduced to the conflict of this story. Job is a man who consistently honors God with his life by doing what is right. That's what it means to be righteous. Job suffers incredible loss that is not his fault, meaning is not caused by any foolish decision he made. In verse 6 of chapter 1, the reader is transported to this heavenly divine council. You might think of it as like a command center where the Lord Almighty is holding court with his staff team. This angelic team that he assembled in order to carry out his will. And the accuser, the Hebrew for accuser is Satan, where we get the word Satan. The accuser is there and God takes the initiative to say, hey, what have you been doing? And the accuser has been loitering the earth, just roaming around. And God says, have you considered Job? He's a righteous man. Uh, it's like God is proud of him, in my opinion. He like brings him up at the the accuser says, yeah, Job only honors you because you've been good to Job. And he says, if you were to not be so good to Job, then he would curse you to your face. And God gives the accuser some leash to inflict Job with suffering, but not to touch Job himself. And then we find that Job, in a single day, loses everything and nearly everyone in his life. He's a very wealthy man. He lost all of his wealth in a day. Um, he had 10 kids, and he lost all of them in a single day. And Job, I think it's really important at this moment to remember, Job is human. He is like you and me, and so he grieves deeply. And I want us to see this in Job 1, 20 through 22, it says, Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job grieves deeply, but he, at the same time, he worships. It's an incredible response, honestly worth long consideration ourselves, but the story is just beginning. After so much suffering and after such a great response, you would think 
you know, he's not going to suffer again. No, if you know the story, he, he actually suffers even more. So uh, as we read uh, this section of scripture, I invite you to stand. Uh, this is one of our primary readings. So just to honor God's word, if you're able to stand, uh, you'll find the, the words to follow along to Job 2. This is chapter 2, uh, and I'll read it for us. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, from going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. It's kind of the same as the first chapter. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's nothing. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered to the Lord and said, skin for skin, you didn't give me enough leash. All the man has, he'll give for his life, but stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. That's why I say he's asking for more leash. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But she said, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they made an appointment together to come to show Job sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that Job's suffering was very great. You can have a seat. Thank you. After this, we have this long section of rising action, if you're familiar with literary design. This is the rising action in chapters 3 through 37 where the plot is thickening and what happens is Job's friends no longer act very friendly towards him. In poetic dialogue, it, it's Hebrew poetry that we read in this section, they accuse Job of somehow being guilty. They, they, they kick him while he's down, and they do so with their theology, with their view of God. This lasts for over 30 chapters. And so although we're covering it in a very short amount of time, if you were to like spend time alone with God reading this book, most of your time would be spent in this section. And it can be quite a difficult section to digest and even to kind of track with. So in a nutshell, here's their message, the friend's message for 30 minutes. God's in control. God is just. He's a good judge. Therefore, Job, you wouldn't be suffering if you didn't somehow deserve this. There's no one righteous but God, Job, so you've got to be lying or not disclosing the whole truth about your situation. Bad things, things like this, just don't happen to people who don't deserve it. 
It's a very simplistic view of God and of the world. And Job responds consistently with, hey, I believe God's in control too. I believe he's just. I just don't understand why this is happening because I didn't do anything to deserve this. This is a bad thing that seems to be happening to someone who, who doesn't deserve it. Like Job's like, I'm not lying. Job is saying God's character is consistent. God's faithful. They're saying the same thing. The friends just seem to be saying, there's not really room for mystery here, Job. Whereas Job is screaming, absolutely there is. There's got to be. And so while Job defends his innocence, he's on this emotional roller coaster. I mean, he is suffering. He's suffering on top of suffering because we've got to remember he lost everything. He lost his kids. His wife is not encouraging him to be faithful and hold fast to his integrity. He, he enters into an existential crisis. And, and all that means is Job is now questioning everything that he thought he knew about God and the world. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is the meaning of all this? What's the purpose of human life? And I just want to point out one example from Job chapter 13. It won't be on the slide. Um, but it begins in verse 15 where Job says, though he slay me, talking about God, because he's in total control, Job is saying, though he slay me, God is inflicting me, yet I will hope in him. That's what Job says. Then he says, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Okay? So, though God slay me, I will put my hope in him and I'm going to argue my case to God's face. And he goes on in chapter 13 and he concludes with this. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So he starts by saying, my hope is in the Lord, but the rest of the chapter he calls the Lord's judgment into question and he concludes by comparing his own life to that, this is the picture I get, of a rotten banana peel on the top of a trash heap. Man wastes away like a rotten thing. This is what an existential crisis looks like, feels like, sounds like. He's just suffering. He's questioning. And he's really honest with God. He never curses God. But he does question, and he basically says, like we read, like, I'm going to present my case. Like, let's go to court, God. Let's hash this thing out. At the end of this section, you, I've got to let you know about Elihu. Uh, he's a young guy. Job's friends were all older, respected men in the community. Then Elihu comes in. He's disappointed with the ability of the three other guys to put Job in his place and to give an answer to this clear problem. And I think for us today, it's helpful to think about Elihu like a young seminary grad who knows all the answers, honestly. Or if you're in the military or former military, like a, a hotshot lieutenant who thinks, you know, like, that's the lowest ranking officer, but he's an officer. He thinks he's got all the answers. I'm a lieutenant, by the way, <laughs> so I can make fun of lieutenants. <laughs> but you might think five chapters, Elihu goes on and on, claiming that he's got the answer. And the crazy thing is, God replies to Job, and God even calls out Job's three friends, 
God doesn't even give Elihu a response. And you might think, well, what do we do with Elihu? It's kind of wasted space. What a great way to end the section. Wasted space. Wasted words on a mystery. Thinking that we can explain the answer. Finally, the story climaxes. When the God who had been silent throughout Job's suffering speaks to Job. Chapters 38 through 41 is God, it's it's 98% God speaking to Job. And it, it goes like this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? God says to Job, dress for action like a man. Get ready, Job. I will question you. And you make it known to me. You've been questioning me. Now I'm going to question you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. If you know how creation works and how the snow falls and how the rain comes forth and the seas and the beasts and God goes on and on and on. And God responds to Job with questions like this. Who are you? And can you do what I do? God was kind to Job in answering him, but I just want you to know that God did not answer Job's questions directly. God's answer simply made it clear that God was God and that Job was not. And so I invite you to stand again. Just uh, If for nothing else, blood flow, uh, it helps us learn. Um, but it also... It's just a little way to honor God's word. We don't do it all the time, but we'll do it today. Uh, Chapter 42, I'm going to read this in the whole. This is the conclusion. This is the falling action part of the narrative. Then Job answered the Lord and said, after God had said all this, this is Job's answer. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the Lord had spoken these words, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he'd had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and those who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy, and they comforted Job for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave Job a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And Job had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. 
He also had seven sons and three daughters. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of years. Thanks. You can be seated. So to quickly recap what we just read, the Lord was upset with Job's friends for misspeaking, misrepresenting him. And he said, if you read what Job says, it's quite a little bit surprising that God approves of what Job said, that Job spoke rightly. So God had Job mediate on behalf of his friends, kind of like Job sacrificed on behalf of his kids at the start of the story, if you're familiar with it. And in Job's wrestling, Job asked God, like when, when Job was really struggling, he was like, if only there was a mediator who could intercede and represent me to God. But in the end, Job got to be one. Ultimately, God was incredibly kind, gracious to Job in giving him more kids, double the wealth, and just a restored reputation, a restored community. These are all the gifts, but really, I don't, want you, I don't want us to miss that Job experienced the giver. In Job's final reply, we see that he was changed. He, he, these are his words. I'd heard of you, God, but now I've seen you. And so, as a reader, we are left with the question that we started with. How can a good and all-powerful God allow injustices like this to happen? And honestly, the story just doesn't give you a direct answer. It, it highlights the mysterious nature of the answer. Job never knows about the command center, the heavenly command center that we're privy to. But I just want to say, when you consider the rest of the biblical narrative, the big story that we're studying, there is one answer that we should be considering very deeply today in light of the rest of the story. Why does a good and all-powerful God allow injustice to happen? The greatest example of the problem of evil, the greatest injustice that ever occurred, actually accomplished humanity's greatest good. Jesus was more innocent than Job, more righteous than Job, suffered more deeply than Job, a gruesome and unjust death. In fact, where his heavenly father, the source of his identity and his, his very life, turned his face away. And Jesus did all of this so that undeserving sinners like you and I can live in him and with him now and forever. So Rather than directly answer the problem of evil, really the Bible on a whole, it poses another question. It poses the problem of good. Why and how would a God who is all-knowing, all-good and all-powerful choose to suffer for us? And so with that in mind, I just want to conclude with some personal applications First, is God being God enough for your worship? This is what Job was faced with in chapter 1 and beyond. Do, do, do we need health and wealth 
Now, I'm all for, you know, like being healthy and, you know, pursuing, pursuing wealth. It's, it's not necessarily sinful to pursue. But do we need health and wealth in order for God to be worthy of our worship? Can worship happen even when you have a headache and you feel crummy? Or perhaps do you need other people to kind of see things your way, you know, in order to really enter into worship? Um, Do you need music of a certain quality or a certain style? And again, there's nothing wrong inherently with having preferences as long as they stay in the right order. I just want to say, though, the essence of worship is our response to the person of who God is. God's unchanging, like no other nature, who he is. So Job challenges us, is God alone enough for our worship? Job also, another application that challenges us is when we're around others who are suffering, what kind of friend are we? Will we sit with suffering people and mourn with them and not go straight into assuming, oh, this is God's punishment or I have the answer for this? Henry Nouwen is a spiritual writer uh, who said, the friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, the friend who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not healing, not curing. That is the friend who cares. This is not a license for passivity. This is using good situational awareness. This is being a friend and exercising wisdom. Another application, I believe, is we need to pay attention to our souls in the midst of suffering. No one knows exactly what Job repented of. At the end of the story we read, Job repented. Um, We don't get details as to what. Personally, this is just my opinion. Personally, you see Job, he he never curses God, but he does kind of start taking little steps on the path of God might be in the wrong. Like, I want to take God to court because there might be an injustice that needs rectified. And... uh, Job repents. Job is, he's connected to his inner man, who he is on the inside throughout his suffering. And, and honestly, just human nature, that is the last thing that we want to do when we're suffering. We feel a negative emotion. Our normal reaction is, let's leave it. Let's, let's forget about it. Let's do something else. Let's replace it. And I just believe that a healthy way to deal with negative emotions is You feel it, and then you choose to tolerate it. You step in for a time, and you you listen to what is this telling me, this negative emotion. You're not controlled by it. You're, You're taking the step in to really learn from it. You tolerate it, and then you take a step out, and you pause. You just continue to take it in from a distance. Then you can choose, and then you can act. And we've talked about that that process before. And I just want to say, this is the case for Job. I believe it's the case for us. God enlarges our soul. He grows us through grief and loss. Now, you don't have to ask for it. Like, you don't have to pursue it. But just know 
that God is at work in the midst of our suffering. And finally, we can trust God without completely understanding him. Job is used by later biblical authors such as James in the New Testament as an example. So let's hear what James says in chapter 5. He's urging the church, he says, be patient, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Behold, so pay attention, we consider blessed. Those people are really well off who remain steadfast, unmoved in the face of trial. You've heard of Job's steadfastness, and I'm thinking, I just studied this story, I'm thinking, Job's steadfast? He's an emotional roller coaster. Exactly. Where was his anchor? The whole time, his integrity was in the person of God. Now, he, you know, he was all over the place, but this is James' summary, the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And Job, remember, Job never did curse God. Like the accuser said, surely he would. He cursed about everything else. <laughs> but it's significant. He did not curse God. And so I just want to emphasize all these applications, you know, they're not, they're not going to make us good enough. I just don't want anyone walking out of here thinking, okay, I've got to do better at, you know, just empathizing and, you know, being there for those who suffer. I've got to do better at, you know, um, trusting God, even though I don't completely understand him. I just, I just, because if, if you walk away with that, you're either going to become proud, oh, I've been doing better, or demoralized, oh, I haven't been doing well enough. And so I just want to encourage you, for all of us, the way forward is to do these things with Jesus, abiding in him, centering our life on him, finding from him the power to move towards this kind of life, and ultimately remembering that we trust God because we saw what happened when Jesus fully trusted God with his very life. God raised him from the dead, and he glorified Jesus. And we're not trying to be good friends on our own power, but we actually bring this type of friendship to others who are suffering because when we suffer, we let Jesus be that kind of a friend to us, the kind of friend that Job so desired but he never had. And that's what we offer to others, the comfort that we've received from the God of all comfort. And in Jesus, we see that God is worthy of our worship simply because is God. So let's conclude by praying. Heavenly Father, um, I don't know the ways or the intensity of each person's suffering, past or present. I don't know their questions. Um, really, none of us do, but you, you know it all. You're in control and you are rich in mercy and loving compassion towards us. You demonstrated that in the ultimate way by giving up your life for someone like me, a sinner who does not deserve it. So if you're here today and, and you want to turn away from living life your way and trust Jesus as your Savior and your King, find me or find someone you trust after the service and tell them, have that conversation. If you've already trusted Christ, use this time now to, to talk with him about trusting him in your suffering and with your suffering.